1: everyone to Nightlight Part 2, which should be renamed the Mark and Mark show for tonight. Uh, the mommy of Goldie and Ziggy wants to know which Mark is the evil twin. Anyhow, he's back. i uh, not talking about the mysterious heavy breather from last week. Um, I'm talking about my long-distance neighbor Mark Deweziak. Uh He was one of the callers a couple weeks ago during the 10-minute 10, 10 Twilight Zone testimonials hosted by Arlen Schumer. Uh, Mark has been a nightlight guest a couple of times to discuss his book on shack The Night Stalker, which... Um, has a direct impact on this journalism career I've had going on for 10 years. Uh, Better not say Barbara is my Tony. Maybe Barbara is more like Miss Emily. Um, Or could Barbara be more like Tony's unbelieving niece? We'll find out more as the show develops. Um, And, you know, Mark also covered his uh, book on the beloved Shawshank Redemption movie. Um, During those two shows, uh, uh, you know, Mark and I touched on his uh, book, Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. Uh, the expanded version recently became available. And if, if you'd like to learn m- more about Mark, you can go to his website, markdowidziak.com. That's M A R K D A W I D Z I A K.com. Hi, Mark. How are you?
2: I'm good good um, uh thanks for have, having me back i guess i uh, passed the audition the first time huh
1: <laughs> yeah uh yeah i i'd say so uh yeah you you're just a a terrific guest and i, I know, just like so, so many people from the um yeah, toy zone conferences you know uh multi talented, have uh, interests in all kinds of areas and uh, you present the material in a captivating way. So uh, I'm just glad to have you on. I mean we I I think we just kind of uh get get into all kinds of things. I actually have some ideas Lined up, but you know you're also talented enough where I you know, I could just say I'm going to go make a sandwich. I'll come back and <laughs> we'll make one for When you the me. show's over,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But,
1: but um, <laughs> Can I put my order in now? <laughs> <laughs> but but um, yeah, you know, for, for, first of all, uh, over the weekend. Uh, i saw you uh <laughs> your uh monsterama conference uh, up on youtube I, it was you know a lot of fun watching uh you reba um uh, another mark and an uh, you know doing your little hour long discussion it, it was just fun fun uh just being in the audience and uh you know, so hearing, um, how, uh, in hearing how broad Serling impacted your lives but um you, know, you made a comment in you know, like in a really fancy uh, setting um i was like oh wow okay uh, book sales must have gone you know, been going really well, and then you, know, you told us where you were, and, and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's e- e- even more impressive. It, so, can, can you tell us like y- about y- your weekend trip? Uh, I thought that was oh, sure. really a lot of fun.
2: It was actually longer than a weekend. It was actually we spent oh, about okay. a week there, um, oh. and where we were was when, when uh, the the starting the, the other mark was Mark Scott Cree who wrote the Twilight Zone Companion. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he said that's is that your house? And I I laughed and I said I, don't I wish, because I was sitting in the library of a place in upstate New York in Elmira called Quarry Farm, and Quarry Farm is where Mark Twain spent his summers. He would pack up the thing. He lived in Hartford for most of the most productive years of his life. He built this fantastic house in Hartford. Um, he built a house which was. Somewhat uh, after his own image, it's a it's a very eccentric house, and it has been restored to its, its its great glory. And so, if you want to visit Hartford at some point and see this house, I strongly recommend it. It's, it's been described as part Victorian mansion, part steamboat, and part cuckoo clock, and uh, that's not a bad description. Uh, Twain was uh, when when they lived in Hartford, th- he didn't get a lot of writing done in Hartford. Those were social months. They would, they would entertain almost constantly. There was an endless stream of guests. Uh, I mean, he did some writing there, but the, the, the real writing was done at Quarry Farm, which was his sister-in-law's farm in Elmira. uh, Sukraine, uh who was his wife's sister, had a working farm and with this wonderful house on the, t- on the top of a hill, which overlooked Elmira and the Chemung River, and she built him a study a little freestanding octagonal study uh, which was a little bit away from the house up on a bluff and overlooking the river. And uh, it was in that study that he wrote most of the great books. That's where H- the majority of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and life on the Mississippi, uh, and Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. The majority mm-hmm. of those books were written in this, this octagonal study, which was built as a replica of the pilot house on a steamboat on the Mississippi River, so she 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 created this wonderful working environment for him, and he could be very close to the family, but yet at at, at a remove in, in in silence, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful place to create, and that house uh, stayed in uh, the possession of the Langdon family, which was uh, Mark Twain's in-laws, and then the the, the Langdon family set up a trust for it to be the center for Mark Twain studies. It's not open to the public, but it is open to scholars and writers and residents. And I gave a talk there, I uh, gave a lecture there last week. And if you're one of the invited lecturers, you get to stay in the house. It's your house for while you're there. So my wife and wow. daughter and I all stayed in this, this incredible house. And it's not the first time. Actually, this was our fourth time staying in the house. Uh, so we've gone back. Uh, Becky was about five years old, I think, the first time we went. So we've gone back uh, at a rate of about every five or so, and um, it was ama- it's an amazing place, and it was an amazing place to do the Twilight Zone panel from. But uh, I feel like I've been talking about um,
3: uh,
2: so spooky subjects, let's say, because the topic of the talk I gave at the Center for Mark Twain Studies was Mark Twain meets Dracula. That was the title of the, of the, of the talk. And okay. it was only a little bit facetious because um, behind it was, was a lot of scholarship, uh, which starts with the notion of, does Mark Twain make a cameo appearance in Bram Stoker's novel Dracula? Does he show up in some way? Did, did Stoker sneak him in? And the answer is yes, he did. And, okay. But you have to know... What,
1: what's the proof?
2: Well, well, you have to know enough about Bram Stoker and enough about Mark Twain and enough about Dracula to, to put all of it together. But there is a moment in the book where Van Helsing, uh, has the, the, the great vampire hunter, has, has marshaled the troops around him. He has brought all the vampire hunters, uh, Jonathan Harker and Quincy Morris and Arthur And he has assembled them and he's telling them all about Dracula's powers and his weaknesses. He's telling them what a vampire is, basically. He's spelling it out. And at one point, one of them, I think it's it's Dr. Seward, says, you're asking us to believe the impossible. And Van Helsing says, um, I know of an American who says that faith is believing what you know ain't so. And I follow that man. He's referring to Mark Twain. The quote is in a book called Following the Equator, which Twain was working on while he was living in London at the exact same time that Stoker was putting the finishing touches on Dracula. And so there's absolutely no question in uh, the Dracula scholar's mind that Van Helsing is quoting Mark Twain in that piece. But the paper went on to talk about this incredible friendship that Bram Stoker and Mark Twain had, which is not very well known and not very, very much explored or written about. But they were friends I, I for a long time. I did not know time, that. Huh. And they had a great interest in ghost stories. They had a great interest in, in, in supernatural stories. And they loved delighting each other. with, with, with There's their, their, records of them sitting around talking over meat, pies, and beer and exchanging ghost stories. So, uh, hmm. that, that, so this is a this is a great friendship. It's ve- it's a very uh, it, you know that, that that lecture is archived right now, and you can watch it if you'd like uh, or listen to it and watch it because there is a PowerPoint presentation that goes with it, and that's up at the Center for Mark Twain Studies website uh, right now. So, you know he, that was the talk I was giving, and then while I was at Quarry Farm. I was scheduled to be on the Twilight Zone panel, so I decided to do it in the library, which was this amazing room well, with this, this very dark oak-lined uh, walls and shelves, and it was just—it had a very Vincent Price look to it. You know, when when the when we started, I felt like you know, say good evening, everyone, and uh, it was—it just had a very uh, atmospheric, and I knew it was the perfect place to do the uh, discussion of the twilight zone from so and that was one of two panels i did for monster because i also did the um, panel on dark shadows uh for mm-hmm. monsterrama so i've been talking <laughs> so for the past week i've talked about mark twain dracula bram stoker twilight zone and dark shadows so uh and and you can you you can go
1: in any direction Mark.
2: You any one of those topics is up for grabs as well as night stalker
1: and uh I'll, I'll and, and everything else out. Yeah I I I was uh planning on it. I but I you know, the uh Br- Bram Stoker and uh M- Mark Twain friendship I did, did, that that caught me by surprise did did not know that but,
3: well
2: uh, Bram Stoker had an amazing circle of friends Bram Stoker is one of these guys that y- we don't really know that much about Uh, You can, if you want, I mean, there was an outstanding biography of Stoker uh, published just a couple years ago by David J. Skull called Something in the Blood. And it it is really an amazing work on Stoker. But Stoker is kind of a shadowy figure in, you know, we, we don't know. And one of the reasons is that, one, Stoker wrote 18 books, you know. Now, as I say in the talk, Bram Stoker wrote
1: eighteen books.
2: Question: Tell me another one.
1: Can you do um, it? I no. I know there's. Uh...
2: And, and there are a couple of sort of second, like *Lair of the White Worm*, and uh, which is which, is, which oh. was made into a, a film by uh, Ken Russell. Uh, no, there's another okay, one called that. *Jules*. Yes. yes. Jewel of the Seven Stars, which is an early mummy novel, and there have been four film versions of that, including one called The Awakening with Charlton Heston. But again, you know, Ron Stoker isn't like Charles Dickens, where if I see, okay, Charles, send me some titles that Charles Dickens, people, oh, you know, Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Great Expectations, Christmas Carol, Bleak House, Mm -hmm. you could go on and on. Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry, Finn, Life on the Mississippi. You come down to, to Bram Stoker and you say, okay, Bram Stoker, Dracula. That's and it, yeah. very, very few people know, can name any of the other books that he wrote. So he's kind of a one-hit wonder in a way, a literary one-hit wonder. And this also, he's kind of a shadowy because in his lifetime, in, 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 he, was not, he, he was not even best known as a writer. So, you know, it's like, well, well, what was he best known for? Well, he was best known as the manager of the Lyceum Theater in London. And what was the Lyceum Theater in London? The Lyceum Theater in London was the home theater of Sir Henry Irving. And who's Sir Henry Irving? And I get the same thing. It's like saying to, 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 to when I give talks on vampires, you know, and, I, I, and, I, and I say this, I say, Sir Henry Irving, nobody knows who I'm talking about. And then I say, okay, well, now I've got to stop and explain Sir Henry Irving to you. And I say, okay, well, let's do it this way. Take the, 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 the ten, who you think are may, maybe the, the ten most popular actors on the planet, you know, whoever they might be, whether that's Will Smith uh, or Harrison Ford or Chris Pine, or Chris Hemsworth or anybody named Chris you want to name. Just take any ten of them, put them all together multiply him by 10, and you still wouldn't have Sir Henry Irving. That's how big Sir Henry Irving was. In fact, he was the first actor to be Sir Anything. He was the first one. There's there's no other. He's the first one to be knighted. He's the first one to go down on one knee in front of a monarch, have his shoulders tapped by a sword, arise, Sir Henry Irving. That's how big he was. I mean, Mark, this guy was so big that when he died in 1905, the funeral was at Westminster Abbey. And I, it just doesn't get honor. any bigger than Westminster Abbey. That's where they buried the kings and queens. And, and that's Dickens. how big he was. Yes, Dickens is there. And here's the thing. If you had attended that funeral in 1905 and you had suggested that 115 years later, a a professor at a university could stand in front of a class of students at a major American university and say the name, Sir Henry Irving, and not one person would know who you were talking about. You would have been thrown out of that abbey, speaking heresy. But then if you'd had the temerity to go to the next step and suggest that his manager, Bram Stoker <laughs> would be better known than Sir Henry Irving. You wouldn't have been thrown out of that, Abbey. You would have been laughed out. And that's because Bram Stoker did indeed eclipse the greatest actor on the planet at that moment. And he did it by writing a book that was bigger than himself, an amazing book. Dracula is just an, it a book that won't quit, and it is just that good. And it, that, that book has, is about a potentially immortal creature. And that is how Bram Stoker secured a level of immortality for himself by writing that one incredible book. Now, in his lifetime, Bram Stoker maintained friendships with a staggering number of writers and poets and statesmen. He was known and trusted seemingly by everybody. And if I told you just a few of the people who Bram Stoker counted as friends and who people depended on, we would be here the rest of the night. But I've already told you he was friends with Mark Twain. Well, he was also friends with another major American literary figure, and that's Walt Whitman. Whitman thought Bram Stoker was just an amazing man. They met in Camden, New Jersey at, at Whitman's cabinet, They exchanged letters for years and years, and they, there was a mutual admiration society. So we're talking Walt Whitman and Mark Twain, now, it just doesn't get any bigger than
3: that
2: when it comes right. to American literary figures of the late 1800s. But then shift and go over to the other side of the Atlantic. In England, he knew Oscar Wilde. a matter of fact, his hmm. Bram Stoker's wife, Florence, Oscar Wilde was a suitor for her hand. Before she married Brom Stoker, she, settled, she, she, she She decided to marry mm. Stoker instead. And Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. So you have got mm-hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle and Oscar Wilde on one side of the Atlantic and Mark Twain and Walt Whitman on the other. Tell me a, a better quartet than that. <laughs> I don't know like we're just getting started. You know, Lord Tennyson. W. S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, Winston Churchill, Theodore Roosevelt, he knew George Bernard Shaw. He, you know, he was at the heart of the London theatrical uh, district. He was at the heart of the London society, and so he was known and admired and trusted by a staggering number of people. And uh, Mark Twain happened to be one of them. So Stoker's is endlessly fat, just as. Dracula is an endlessly fascinating book. Uh so so is Stoker an an endlessly fascinating uh writer and he he just gets more fascinating the more you learn about
1: it. You know when uh you know we've had uh Varla Ventura a- as a guest uh, of you know, we've covered her uh uh many details she has in her uh, vampire book, but you know, she has uh, one of, uh, it, it was uh, a, a f- uh, fragment from a chapter that uh, did, didn't make it into Dracula, or, or it was like a um uh, scene that he wrote for a, a follow up or so, you know so, something like that, you know, she, uh, she she just reprinted this fragment. That uh, j- just that book is the only you know title of his. And, and now that you mentioned Lair the White Worm and you know the uh, fragment in Varla's book, uh, it, it, it's really interesting that you know. You're tying all this together and uh, making links to Mark Twain. Uh, sounds like you have a fascinating presentation on this subject. It's, that's one of the reasons why I like have, having you as a guest. You never know what uh, you're going to talk about. But yeah, the, in the, you know, Oscar Wilde's uh, *Dorian Gray*. That's uh, uh, pretty creepy book as well. You know, it seems almost like a foreshadow of Night Gallery. Yeah, you
2: know, it, Dracula is kind of uh, it, it, Dracula Dracula's a book is is, is kind of the part of two different trilogies, horror trilogies. And if you put it all together, you've got an amazing <laughs> uh, collection of, of 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 seminal horror. It, you know, the one is it's one of the three seminal horror novels of the 1800s, the first being Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the second oh, yeah. being Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the third being uh, published in 1897 is Dracula. But mm-hmm. uh, all are, then, then there's like this second trilogy of, uh, those books are separated, you know, by, by, by a good distance. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, uh, Dracula was published in the 1890s, uh, Jekyll and Hyde is the 1880s, and and Mary Shelley's uh, book is around 1820. So they are separated by a good deal. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you throw Edgar Allan Poe in, you know you've kind of those four are almost like the Mount Rushmore of of, of horror writers of the uh, of, mm-hmm. of the 1800s. Uh, not that they say there aren't a lot of important horror writers. Uh, all around them, there are, but those four kind of chart up a little bit, basically because of the body of work and the fact that three, the three of them wrote these landmark novels, and uh, so much of modern horror comes off of that and Poe, but Poe's work is mostly short stories.
3: So mm-hmm.
2: you get to the 1890s, and now you've got the second all, uh, the, the, what's like an English trilogy or the British Isles, I should say, because both Stoker and Wilde were Irish. Uh, but you have this kind of British Isles trilogy where you have Henry James writing Turn of the Screw, Oscar Wilde writing Dorian Gray, and again, Stoker writing Dracula. Those three books are very tightly grouped in in when they were published. So, um, And Dracula is kind of the book that belongs in both trilogies. Uh, so you, 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 But you put those five books in the work of Poe together, and uh, that's a lot of very important horror literature. <laughs> that's, the, that's kind of the body of work right there that's going to take us into the next century and, you know, allow people like Algernon Blackwood and H.P. Lovecraft uh, to take it to the next level and then the writers of the 50s like Bradbury and, and Robert Bloch and Richard Matheson to take it to the next level. And, you know, it. it it's the continuum that takes us to Stephen King and the writers of today. So, uh, you know, uh, Stephen King once said that we are all Poe's grandchildren and uh, that's not entirely wrong.
3: (laughs) It's not a bad
1: quote. Uh, uh, That sounds like something he he would say. And I, I, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because
2: my, you know, you, well, maybe maybe this isn't exclusive. I don't know because I haven't said this out loud on a show yet, um, at least with not cool. with any depth. But the next the, the next book exclusive. is going to be a, the next book is going to be on Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, the the book I'm working on right now is a biography of Poe, and it'll be for St. Martin's, the same people who published the uh, the Twilight Zone book, and mm-hmm. uh, that's the book I'm deep in research and and uh, and writing right now. And so, you know, Poe is is seminal, you know. The interesting thing about Poe is, to me, one of the interesting things about Poe is, with Poe, it's always what you think you know, not what we actually know. There's so much of Poe's life which is shrouded in mystery, and not to to mention his death. I mean, you know, Uh Poe has one of the great stage exits in literary history. Uh, Everybody always thinks Mark Twain's stage exit is, is... is the stage exit, and in many ways it is, is because Mark Twain was born with Halley's Comet in the night sky uh, on November 30th, 1835. And he dies in April 1910 with Halley's Comet burning in the night sky. He comes in and he goes out with a comet. Well, that's the kind of thing which would not be out of place in Greek myth. That was not, that's the kind of thing that would not be out of place in uh, in a supernatural story. Uh, And and he predicted it. The other part of it, the great part of it, is that a year before his death, um, Twain said, told an audience, I came in in 1835 with Halley's Comet. It's coming again pretty soon, and I expect to go out with it. It'll be the greatest disappointment of my life if I do not go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said no doubt. Now here are these two indefinable freaks, They came in together. They must go out together. I'm looking forward to that. So he predicted it. And he did indeed die with Halley's Comet in the night sky. Uh, That's pretty good. But Poe Poe dies and leaves us a double-barreled mystery in that uh, he's missing for a few days before his death. And we don't know what happened to him. There are a lot of theories. But we have no idea what happened during those missing days, and we have no idea what killed him. There are endless theories about what Poe died of. Uh, encephalitis, rabies, alcoholism, uh, a brain tumor, exposure. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just a, uh, There are endless, endless theories. And the truth is, we'll never know because the, the birth certificate, the death certificate, there is no real death certificate. Uh, the, the attending doctor changed his story. He's an unreliable witness. And the symptoms that Poe died of fit a staggering number of possible death mechanisms. So we're never going to know what Poe died of. And he leaves us, he, he dies under terrible circumstances. So he dies in a manner which is reflective of the two literary achievements of that we, that we still know him for. He's the father of the detective story and he is the father of the modern horror story. He dies under circumstances which are certainly fit the horror story. And he leaves us with a double barreled mystery. How good is that? You know, so Poe is this, this, but the interesting thing about Poe, and it goes back to something you said before about, you know, you said something about my interest. Most of the, the horror writers of the, uh, those ones we were talking about are the 1800s. Mary Shelley, Poe, uh-huh. Robert Louis Stevenson, Bram Stoker. If you had said to them, oh, you know, you're a horror writer. Because it's kind of, you know, how a lot of people remember them. Poe in particular. You know, if you, the stereotype of Poe is sort of a, the the, the hunched over, hollowed-eyed, slightly mad figure up in an attic, you know, uh, dashing off stories with a raven perched on his shoulder and a black cat at his right hand and a bottle of cognac on the table. And that's what it is. It it is a stereotype. It's a myth. You know, Poe is a very careful writer and a very careful craftsman. And his writing, I love people who say to me, When I tell them, you know, my interest in Poe, or that I'm writing a biography of Poe, they'll say, oh, I love Poe. I've read everything he's ever written. I say, really? (laughs) You've read all 17 volumes? And they kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? You know, Poe's collected work, it is 17 volumes. And very, very little of it falls into the horror or crime category. He wrote a lot of criticism. He wrote essays. He wrote early science fiction. He wrote a lot of humor. A lot of his pieces are humorous pieces, satires, and hoaxes. And believe me, nobody thinks of Edgar Allan Poe comedy writer. But he had a great sense of humor. And that's something we don't attribute to him. Uh, we Mm -hmm. we we, We don't say, we don't think of Poe as a funny guy, but he was a funny guy. And it comes out in a lot of his writing kind of reduced Poe to the brand. We've kind of taken this, this multi-talented writer, this very complex writer, and we've reduced him to the sort of the master of the macabre, the godfather of all things goth. We've reduced him to the brand. And that's a very 20th century American conceit to sort of identify something. Almost like scientists have got to put a bug under a pin and and be able to label it and say this is what this is this this guy is a horror writer this guy is a western writer that 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 director does this or that director does that and it, it makes the 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 people who sort of bounce around and do a lot of different things it makes it very difficult for people to sort of wrap their mind around them um and i i had this discussion with bill nolan uh, a few years ago, and and, and Bill Nolan is, it, you know, I mean, he was right there with that group of writers, which was called The Group, which is the California group. They all hung around at Ray Bradbury's house, but it was people like Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, and Bill Nolan was friends with all of them and knew them all. And he's kind of, you know, uh, some people are probably right now going, Bill Nolan, Bill, Nolan, I know that name, William F. Nolan, I know that name. Well, he did landmark science fiction. He co-wrote *Logan's Run*. He uh, wrote a lot of uh, Dan Curtis movies. Uh, but Bill also has done a lot of other things. He's written sports books. He's done books on, on race car driving. He's written film biographies. He's written mysteries. He's written. He's a, a, a Dashiell Hammett expert. He's he's done landmark work on Dashiell Hammett. He's an amazingly versatile writer. And Bill told me once that he thought that if he had stuck to one thing like Stephen King, he would have had a much more successful career and he would have been better known. That, you know, he wasn't a specialist. And, you know, I kind of, yeah, but you're not built that way. You don't get to make that choice. Um, and, And that's kind of not a choice that writers ever had to make historically. That's a very modern thing where you have to brand yourself and say, i 'm a horror writer or i 'm a mystery writer, or whatever, so you know if you had said to Poe you're a horror writer, he'd have looked at you and said, what, what are you talking about? you know oh, you mean I write gothics is that what you to, what you mean and then he still wouldn't have understood it because he wrote horror stories because that's what would sell, and there were magazines that wanted that sort of thing. He primarily viewed himself as a poet more than anything else and he also looked at himself as an essayist and a critic. And the same thing with Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, you know, he wouldn't have known what you meant if you said that he was a horror writer. He would have just said, you know, today I'm writing Treasure Island. Tomorrow I'm writing A Child's Garden of Verses. And the next day I'm going to write something called The Body Snatcher or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm just going to tell the story the best way. And if it happens to be... Uh, uh, the best way is to tell a supernatural story that 's the way i 'll tell it and if it's the best way is to tell it as an adventure story like treasure island that 's the way i 'm going to tell it. But they would have never thought of themselves in that restricted a way and um you know and, and that 's something which you know is has really worked against Poe as seeing Poe clearly because Poe is hidden by the stereotype by the myth. And the misconceptions, mm-hmm. like somebody once said to me, you know, Poe, didn't he die drunk in the gutter? <laughs> I said, you know, no part of that statement's true. <laughs> Not one part of that statement is true, and yet there's a lot of people that think it is true, and say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that that that's how Edgar Allan Poe died. So Poe is this guy who, you know, if you want to understand him as a horror writer and why he was so good. At, at, and he was good. I mean, there's a reason those stories, we still remember him as the master of the macabre, is because he was really that good at it. But in order to understand that, you have to understand the whole person, Dan, that that came out of something. And you can't separate that out and say, I'm just going to pull that out, and that'll be Poe for me. That'll explain Poe for me. Well, if you do that, then you don't even begin to understand who Edgar Allan Poe was. And this, you know, and that's true of any horror writer. It's true of any, you know, you have to know the whole person. And you know, one thing is, I have probably interviewed, you know, most of the major horror writers of the last 40 years. Um, so you know, I, I, I've had the and 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 been friends with 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 become friends with 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 some of them like like Richard Matheson. And the one thing that I have observed about people who do horror whether we're talking directors or writers and even to a certain extent actors. The one thing I've noticed about them is they all have great senses of humor. And, you know, and as Stephen King mm-hmm. once said to me, well, of course, you know, if you didn't have a sense of humor and you did this kind of thing, you'd go nuts. You'd, you, it would drive you crazy. You have to have a sense of humor. It is part of, of the basic kit you need in order to write horror. You know, Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, was he was a very funny guy. And I remember saying to him how, uh, you know, uh, horror writers, you know, had said, they were funny off stage. They were funny in just talking to them. Comedians don't tend to be funny away from the microphone. They tend to be very quiet and introspective away from the microphone. And when I, when I said, to, you know, the, that about horror writers to Robert Block, he said, yeah, we're funnier, too. And, you know, he, it was, he <laughs> was just that quick. I mean, he was just very funny.
3: You know,
2: and, uh, you know, something that Stephen King said uh, about horror writing, he said, you know, it's cathartic. Horror writing, we take our nightmares and we work through them on the printed page. And then we give them to you. It's your problem now. We're done with them. We're, we, you know, we, we've sort of exercised the demons through the stories and now it's your problem. <laughs> and um, which is, a, you know, a thinking that Robert Bloch very much ascribed to. And, you know, Bloch who who studied Poe's life and work you know, and, and could relate to, 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 to Poe on a lot of levels because of what he did and what he wrote. You know, I remember, you know, Robert Bloch once said to me that uh, nobody thinks of Edgar Allan Poe as a guy who his mother-in-law called Eddie, but that was who Poe was. He was that a guy. Yeah, who he's, he's, he, who 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 split his pants playing leapfrog with his wife in the front yard. That's Poe, and you can't separate that Poe, that guy, the guy who was Eddie. Um, you know the the guy. Uh, you know, he, who had a lot going on in his brain, which was like great,
3: interesting. So it's
2: like something Vincent Price was in, and Vincent Price is an actor who is very much associated with Poe's work. Not a lot of the films were at all faithful to Poe, um, but some, very, some of those Roger Corman films are still excellent and, and very entertaining. Um, but, but Price was devoted to Poe as well, and Vincent Price once said that the, uh, the man who limits his interests limits his life. That is an excellent description of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Price wasn't talking about Poe at the time. But he basically described Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was interested in everything. And that mm-hmm. is one of the things that made him such a good horror writer, <laughs> is because he was drawing from this, this, this endless curiosity about everything around him. And searching for answers and everything around him, and it made him an incredibly uh, perceptive observer of the world, uh, the natural world, and also his fellow human beings. You, you know mm-hmm. post stories are almost Freudian, long before we had the term Freudian. It is that they're almost case studies in in psychoses and obsessions. And so Poe was this great observer. The mistake we make is in confusing Poe with his narrators. And it's the first thing that people who tend to do. And when you get Poe in junior high school and high school, there's a tendency to say, well, the guy who wrote The Telltale Heart, you know, that narrator is Poe. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with Poe mm-hmm. and you're selling Poe short as a writer if you, if you sort you of say, you know that's great he's not the narrator of the cask of amontillado he is not the guy in the fall of house of usher you know he is he, he, that's not who Poe was and but and it's it's too easy to sort of just make that shorthand so anyway you know i i one of the things i want to do with this book and you hadn't guessed it already is I want to knock uh, some of down, some of uh, some, all, uh, and uh, and many myths and misconceptions that surround Poe and keep us from seeing him clearly about who he was.
1: Okay, uh, yeah, you're welcome to be, be a guest whenever it comes out. Well, well that'll be
2: for a while yet, but, uh, but 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 you want to pencil that in.
3: Uh,
2: as you can tell, I'm, I'm always ready and happy to talk about. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that's kind of a—it's hard to find a common theme in my work because it does seem like it's all over the place. But, and I won't say that this is a common theme in saying that it exists in all of the books uh but i would say it is a uh, a recurring theme and that it runs through is that i'm fascinated with writers and the writing process i mean we talked about bram stoker we talked about poe we talked about twain um i'm fascinated by writers and the writing process and where it comes from where does the creativity come from where does the dynamic engine it's one of the things you know that uh drew me to the twilight zone was the excellence of the writing and 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 rod serling and richard matheson these these wonderful writers um so that is a, a sort of a continuing thing fascinated with um you know a lot of my books sort of center on writers the twilight mm-hmm. zone you know at, the, at its heart is is in many ways a tribute to rod serling uh, you know, and I wrote a book on Dracula. I wrote the, the bedside bathtub and armchair companion to Dracula, which is you know uh, largely about the book and the creation of the book. Although it, it 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 embraces all things Dracula, all the films and TV stuff, and all of the the merchandising, and all of the the various ways we see Dracula. You know, which is endless. You know, it's it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, I'll stop there just for a second since we're talking Halloween. I'll make a point here, which is one of the things that absolutely fascinates me with Dracula. One of the reasons we're still talking about this book and one reason this book still haunts us is um, Stoker came up with like the perfect horror metaphor. Not only with the vampire, but with that vampire, with Dracula is Dracula is a book which has been endlessly interpreted and reinterpreted uh, metaphorically, you know, because with horror writers is always the question that lingers in the air, which is what are they writing about? And and I I use this example uh, when I talk about Stoker and and largely because Robert Louis Stevenson is is another favorite author Mm -hmm. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is another favorite book, but I was once talking to a high school class and uh, the teacher told me they had just recently read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I said, Yeah, that's one of my favorite books. And I said, You know, uh, let me ask you a question. What is it about? And yeah, these are high school kids. It takes a while, you know, before a hand will timidly go up. And I said, And so finally, and I said, Yes, you know, and I got a student who stood up and said, Well, It's about a scientist. That's a formula. He drinks the formula, and this monster comes out, and he can't. I said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 time, time. You're giving me plot. I didn't ask for plot. I said, what is it about? What do you think Robert Louis Stevenson was really writing about in this story about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? And now you can see they're kind of really thinking about this. And one student said, you know, I think it's about alcohol. And I said, well, explain that. And they said, well, this is this is about a scientist, and it, it, it's a drink. And he drinks it down, and it brings this monster out that he can't control. And he becomes addicted to it. Well, that is a perfectly good metaphoric interpretation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's nothing wrong with that interpretation. So, you know, when that student got done, another student said, well, if it's about alcohol, maybe it's really about drugs, because he makes the formula from drugs, and it's an impure drug that that gets him in trouble, and he becomes addicted to that, and I said, that works too. Mm -hmm. Somebody else said, you know, I think it's about the battle between good and evil and everybody, how there's this... There's, there's a good part and an evil part in everybody, and they're in conflict. And what happens if one part dominates, and the evil part finally emerges. Oh, that's good, too, and it works. You know, And some people think that Jekyll and Hyde is about man's response to God, which is, I didn't make my, me, you made me. Why am I to blame for the way I am? All of these interpretations metaphorically work. And the, the and, and, and so I said to the students, so let me ask you a question. Which is the right answer? And one of them said, all of them. I said, all of them and none of them. You're the only ones who get a vote. You're the it, you know it, it's always horror. It's always about what you bring to the book. What dreams did you bring to the book? What aspirations? What fears? What nightmares? What hopes? All of those things are going to shape how you view and interpret the story. So here's Jekyll and Hyde with all of these wonderful interpretations. As much as I love Jekyll and Hyde, it is a shallow saucer compared to the ocean that is Dracula.
3: (laughs) Dracula
2: has been interpreted and reinterpreted over and over again. And we constantly shape and reshape that metaphor to suit our needs. And this is what, to me, is endlessly fascinating about the character of Dracula. Dracula is part of yet another trilogy. Three Victorian literary characters who are immediately recognizable, even by people who have never read the books that they appear in. Three Victorian characters who walk the fog bound streets of London. Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, Sherlock Holmes in Conan Doyle stories, and Count Dracula. They are three of the most iconic and recognizable characters. If you show somebody uh, the image of, of the popular image of Sherlock Holmes, with the Inverness cape and the Deerstalker and the Bent Pipe, and say, who is that? Even people who have never read one Sherlock Holmes story are probably going to get it. and say, that's Sherlock right. Holmes. If I you show that. somebody the guy in the nightshirt and the nightcap with the candle, and walking through the window, they say, that's Japanese or Scrooge. The difference is, with, with, uh, is that our interpretation, our image of Scrooge, Even though, you know, the actors who have played him have been, their interpretations have been different. Scrooge mostly fits within the confines of a certain image that we have of him. And the same can be said of all the actors who have played Sherlock Holmes. Dracula never looks the same. Never. Christopher Lee looks nothing like Bela Lugosi. The, the, right, the, okay. the Max Schreck in Nosferatu looks nothing like Jack Palance, who looks nothing like Frank Langella, who looks nothing like Louis Gerdad, who looks nothing like Gary Altman. These Every image, the face of Dracula changes so radically generation to generation that he, he's not even recognizable as the same character. You put the vampire from Nosferatu side by side with the vampire just nine years later in Lugosi's Dracula, they don't even look like first cousins. So we, who's doing that? We are. Because we have different metaphoric needs generation to generation to bend that vampire to suit our our needs at a certain time. And that's what we do. So this is one of the reasons we're still talking about Dracula. This is one of the reasons he's, you know he so haunts the halloween season if there is one iconic image of dracula it's lagosi if you want mm-hmm. if, you, if you showed people the classic image of the guy in the tuxedo and the, the evening clothes and the cape and the widow's peak and the hungarian accent you know that would be the the sort of the the stereotype image of dracula and it's the one that everybody would probably go to first, even if they they tell you that christopher lee is their favorite dracula it's the one that the image everybody universally recognizes and goes to. Generations of kids did not dress up as Christopher Lee to go as Dracula on Halloween. They went as Lugosi's idea of, the dra- of Dracula. And yet that does not in any way, shape, or form resemble the character in the book. It's a it's polar opposite <laughs> of the, how, how Stoker describes the character in the book. So while Scrooge and Sherlock Holmes always kind of meet our expectations, Dracula always blows them up. And I think it's a very interesting part of the character, and I think it's it's why he's always going to be with us, because we, we, we just keep reinterpreting that story. And we keep bending and molding that story to what we need it to be at a certain time. And that's and as I say, we don't do that with almost anything else, and that's that's the power of metaphor, and it's the power of metaphoric storytelling. And so much horror storytelling is predicated on metaphor. So that's you know, that that this is why I could write
1: an entire book on Dracula.
3: <laughs>
1: well, uh, um, you know, while you were talking about Poe and the creation you know his uh being one of the um pioneers of the uh detective fiction um you know the there's our uh breakfast buddy uh uh mark Olshaker, shaker you know we're all t- sitting there talking you know, Johnny and Helen Holmes <laughs> and yeah you know, uh you autographed uh, uh the uh book for uh you know, my friend Celeste. So, yeah yeah, there's like so, so much of that uh, uh what's the word? but uh, so many people uh, from you know like the twilight convention have you know, these you know j- j- just wanting to understand um you know the uh, how to be better people learn you know learn these lessons that are uh, exemplified from you know the twilight zone uh episodes of uh, the kind of people you want to uh uh avoid uh you know by uh, uh being deceived by the howling man and you know, stuff like that uh, okay uh but you know even there are people like uh our friend mark is like co-authoring these uh you know like the mine hunter uh mm-hmm book and uh, uh, yeah that's like uh you know, another example of uh, all horror writers or you know pose uh, grandchildren but you know M- M- mark's dealing with real case like you know these are really beyond uh halloween type of evil creepy T- type people.
2: It does have a kinship with Poe because Poe, uh, you know, a lot of Poe's creepiest stories are not supernatural. They actually could be just as easily classified as crime stories. Telltale yeah. Heart is a crime story. You know, Amontillado mm-hmm. is a crime story. There's nothing supernatural about them. The horror comes from the human animal. It's sort of like the mm-hmm. argument about. Um, Uh, when when Silence of the Lambs won uh, Best Picture, and it became the first picture since uh, uh, it happened one night to sweep the five major uh, Oscars. And uh, people said, well, it's the the first horror film uh, to be named Best Picture. And that kind of, you know, in some circles started the argument, well, is it a horror film, you know, and... uh, you know, there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing paranormal. There's nothing, you know, uh, in, in that category. So, you know, is it a horror film? You know, and I would argue, yes, it is. You know, it's a, it's a horror. So if, if psycho is a horror film, then so is silence of
3: the lamps.
2: You know, that they both deal with the human monster and what mm-hmm. the human monster is capable of, uh, you know, and Poe dealt with that as well. You know, Poe, uh, in some ways, dealt more with that than he did the supernatural. There are very few post stories which are truly supernatural in the sense that we think of horror stories today. Uh,
1: like House so there, of Usher. There,
2: yeah, I mean, there, there's some, but you know, The Pit and the Pendulum is not a supernatural story. Um, right. E- you know, e- even House of Usher has a rational explanation to it. If you if, if if you if you wish to go that route, you know, if you wish to view it through a supernatural lens, you can but you can also view it as a, you know, purely, uh, you know, the things that happen that, you know, she, she, the sister gets buried alive and she comes out and that he, his hearing is acute. And, you know, the house happens to collapse at that, in that moment. Um, one one does not have to uh, put a, a supernatural interpretation on it. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you look at it, um, you know, Poe's stories, a lot of those 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 stories that we deal with as terror tales or horror tales, um, they could just as easily be classified as, as, as crime fiction. Now I happen to think they are horror stories. You know, because again, some there's there are a few things more horrific than the human monster. And I think Poe understood that. And that comes right down but, you know, Mark Holshaker is a really good friend and uh we went. We both went to George Washington University, and we were about four years apart. And uh, so we, you know, uh, I, I think the world of Mark, and I'm after them, I've interviewed him for the Poe biography because he had some wonderful insights into Poe as a writer, uh, because of what he has done with John Douglas, with the, with the Mine Hunter series. But you know, Poe is like, and this goes back to something. There's a big difference between what Poe did. And what Rod Serling did, and you know, this is where they divide Poe's kind of Poe's work. If, if we if we do sort of narrow it down to the two things he's best known for, the horror story and the uh, the mystery story, the detective story. Uh, the difference between those two is is basically that the detective story, or what he would call the stories of rationation, using rational thought to solve a crime using logic and scientific method to solve a crime. That story, which is going to lead us to Sherlock Holmes as as Doyle himself admitted, it was that Dupin is basically that Sherlock Holmes is basically a better, more jumped up version of Dupin and post stories. Um, but if 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 you look at the, the, that that story, the mystery, the detective story, and, and one of my books is on Columbo, so you know I've kind of got one foot in this kind of mystery sleuth field. Those okay. stories promise us one thing: they promise us answers, they promise us solutions, and those is a very comforting thing in in in, a, in in a very upsetting world. You know, this is people will say, well, we need that more now than we ever needed it before. But people have been saying that for decades. You know, people said that when the world was was, was blowing up in the 1930s and nations were tilting towards fascism and uh, there was a depression and uh, there were, uh, you know, uh, soup kitchens and food and bread lines and there was the dust bowl. a dust bowl and there was a, an ecological disaster going on, environmental disaster going on. You know, people said it during World War II, when there was carnage on an unimaginable scale, and the secrets of the of the atom were, were were revealed. People have said it, you know, at every time. Everybody thinks their time is the worst possible time. And the detective story, you know, it doesn't matter what decade it is, because you tell me the decade, and I'll tell you, you know, like something that was very upsetting going on at the time. And um, the detective story, in, in at each phase offers the comfort that there are answers, that there's a solution to things. And uh, and Poe, po, one part of Poe's brain that way, one part of Poe's brain was extraordinarily logical and thought he could figure things out. He could get to answers. The horror story sort of says, <clears throat> it's a search for answers too, but you may not get the answers. The answers may be inexplicable. They may be bigger and insolvable mysteries. And so that's kind of the difference between the horror story and the mystery story. And, and, you know, that's an oversimplification, but it's true. And Poe worked both sides of the street. But I'm working both sides of the street. Poe believed one thing passionately, which was that the stories should not have a moral point of view. They should not have a moral indeed. Poe wasn't big on it. Poe believed that effect, sound, rhythm, that was more important than anything else. And that if you professedly preached or presented a moral of some kind in this story, that was was wrong. (laughs) You shouldn't do it, you know. And Poe, I mean, I I, I think it's impossible to read The Mask of the Red Death and not thinking there's a moral point of view in The Mask of the Red Death. You know, but um, some of Poe's stories, and, and, you know, William Wilson and a few others, definitely Mm -hmm. are cautionary tales. Um, But Poe, in his essays about writing, sort of fled from the moral. You know, Rod Serling did with The Twilight Zone was, Rod Serling embraced the moral. Rod Serling believed, you know, that the uh, stories that were printed under the, tw- the Twilight Zone, for the most part, should have a moral center, and should have a point of view. So that's kind of that's a big difference between Poe and Serling. You know, and 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 Serling read Poe. He was influenced by Poe. We know that, but you know, as they all were, but they also approached things did they were very different writers from that standpoint. Like, even though they were often plowing the same fields, if you will, they were different writers in the sense that while Poe tended to sh- to shy away from the morrow, Serling embraced it. And Serling always. So, which is why a book like everything I need to know, I learned in the twilight zone was possible. It was because, there was, uh, you know, I, 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 not only do I think a book called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from Edgar Allan Poe would be a very short book. Um, it, you wouldn't learn very much of what you learn. <laughs> would not necessarily be that valuable. Uh, you know, you might learn how to dismember a corpse. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Serling, you know, he's, he, The Twilight Zone gives you these endless, endless, wonderful life lessons and morality tales. And that makes it very, very different. And I, and, and I, you know, and, and horror tends to be a very moral genre. You know, I think one of the reasons that Poe didn't write—he wrote one novel—and um, and and he didn't really go back to it very often. Um, and it's not that I don't think Poe—you know—Poe lived to be forty. You know, Rod Serling lived to be fifty. Poe lived to be forty. Uh, Poe left behind a staggering amount of work for somebody who only lived to be forty years old, you know, seventeen volumes of work. It's like the, the, the people who claim that you know Poe is always drunk. I was like no writer would ever make that argument because it's impossible. It is impossible to have written that much and been constantly under the influence of alcohol. It's not to say he didn't have a problem with the bottle. Yeah, I, I believe that Poe was hypersensitive to alcohol. I think there, there's there's a, there's a great deal of evidence that suggests that, that one drink got Poe very drunk. And he was almost allergic to it. That, you know, he may not have drunk that much in volume, but, you know, one drink... And, and, and the descriptions of Poe drinking are like, a, he would charge it down. He would not say, sip or savor. He would take a glass of, of, of wine or something and just in one gulp throw it down. And by the time they, it, it hit his stomach, he was... He was roaring drunk. So, you know, Poe, but, but you know, there are these long stretches where Poe doesn't drink, and he's he's doing an amazing amount of work. You know, and any writer will tell you it's impossible to write to, to 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 summon the levels of concentration you need to write, and the powers of concentration, and craftsmanship you need to write under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And so you know, I, I you know that, that, that's I think that's one part of Poe's life, which is again, um, not so much that that alcohol doesn't bedevil him, it does, and and not that there aren't incidences where he, he 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 is he's in the middle of incredibly self-destructive behavior because of alcohol. You know, it's, I, I don't think there's any question that it was, but I think the amount that he drank might be overstated because again he only lived to be 40 and he managed to write a great deal at a very high level. And Mm -hmm. that's just, so, so, I mean, the difference to me between what Poe wrote and what Serling, and, and and it's, it's interesting because horror does tend to be a very moralistic uh, genre. I mean, you know, first off horror, um, it's predicated on the notion that there is something that's evil. And it's also predicated on the notion that evil needs to be confronted in some way, not that it'll always be defeated. Sometimes, you know, a horror story ends with evil winning or evil being blunted, and you know, and sometimes it ends with the evil being defeated. But it's always sort of about the acknowledgement of evil and 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 the confronting of it, and and that's almost biblical, you know. That's as as, 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 a, as a as a as a form. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is that is very near biblical so uh you know i think it's one thing about uh, uh you know and, and and it's always about a search for 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 answers of some kind and i think we all feel that way the difference again between the difference between the detective story is the detective story is is going to give you answers it's going to order your universe for you the horror story says, maybe, maybe not. And The Twilight Zone, it's kind of miscategorized as a horror show, because it it really isn't. I mean, there are are episodes which were horror episodes, and it certainly embraced horror. But it's, and a lot of people have defined it as a science fiction series, and it really isn't that either, Um, certainly when you compare it to The Outer Limits, which was much more the science fiction series than the Twilight Zone ever was. But, again, the Twilight Zone embraced science fiction, and it embraced fantasy. And you know, so how do you define the Twilight Zone? Uh, is it horror? Is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Is it all of them? Is it none of them? And I think it comes down to the description, to def- the definition of the Twilight Zone is what Rod Serling gave us, that it's, it's as vast as space and as timeless as infinity it's big enough to embrace all of those things and yet it's its own thing. It's the twilight zone and there's no better way to Uh define it. You know, and in that world you are generally punished or rewarded for what you bring in. Most episodes of the twilight zone, the people who brought in all the small things, pettiness, ignorance, greed, uh, bullying you know people who abuse children people who abuse older people these are people you knew were going to take it in the shorts before the half hour was over. and by the same token the people who brought in kindness and and and, and a loving nature and positive stuff they tended to be rewarded for those things and so you know the 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 the, the, the morality of the twilight zone is something which is very very strong, and you know, it's obviously something I'm very very attracted to, and very and and, and have always been. You know, uh, I, I was first attracted to the Twilight Zone as a, as a youngster, just because I thought it was neat, just because I thought storytelling was wonderful. And I loved the spookiness of it. I loved that I was a monster. We don't have, you know, we didn't have that term when I was growing up, Mark. You know, the the term monster kid you know kids adults now refer to themselves as that let's say oh i was a monster kid or well, we didn't have that term back in the 1960s if you were if you were into horror uh, as a genre you were watching the old universal horror films you were watching the twilight zone and the outer limit gallery and night stalker and dark shadows and you mm-hmm. know you you were you were all sort of steeped in the same culture of the 60s uh, and you were all watching the same things, and you had a common language because of that. Yeah, Hammersmith, you know, so, Dracula. That's right. That, that's right. You yeah, know, that, that the, was uh, me. <laughs> that, you know, now, today, you can announce that you're a horror fan, and you could have ten people announce that they're horror fans, and not one of them watch the same things or read the same things. the The field is so big now. And we have horror to suit every taste, every kind of taste, every kind of age and demographic. We have horror tailored for every part of it. And, you know, there was so little of it in the 1960s that we all tended to watch and share the same things. And, you know, that was kind of wonderful in, in a way. It was it was like the equivalent of the whole culture was that, you know, we were all watching the same three channels. We were all watching... Uh, we were we we could be transformed by the same story, you know. It's why when Night Stalker came along in 1972, and it got a a a 34 rating, which was, uh, you know, basically 34 percent of all the TV households in America, were watching the Night Stalker that night, and then it, it got like a 54 share, and the share is the percentage of people actually watching television at a certain time, which means more than half were watching television when Night Stalker aired was were watching that show. Well, you know, getting that kind of numbers for anything now is impossible with the number of channels that exist, with the number of choices that exist, with mm-hmm. the way people watch television now with streaming and everything else. It's impossible for one show or one movie or one thing to – to, to, to grab everybody's attention. And the term everybody's watching it lost its meaning a long time ago. And, you know, The Night Stalker was an incredibly influential horror story because it came on at a point when that term meant something. When the next day, everybody at the water cooler at work, everybody in the playground at school, everybody was going, did you see that thing last night? And remember, there's no VCRs, there's no DVDs, there's no recording, there's no way to make it up. If you didn't see it, you really missed out on something. The only chance you were going to see it is maybe they would rerun it six months later or something like that. But that was your only shot to see it. So it was a, it was a very different world. And it was, a, it was a world where all of this stuff was somewhat shared and, and, and swapped around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Twilight Zone, you know, it, it, that decade is an amazing decade because it, it, has, it does have, you know, Twilight Zone. It does have dark shadows. And, you know, and, and then, you know, 72 is, uh, is Night Stalker. So that, that's if, – if you're alive on the planet and you're a horror fan, you probably were influenced by all three. You're probably aware of all three, were influenced by all three. And there's almost no way around them, <laughs> in, in that sense. And that's, that's, you know, that's why they were so influential. They influenced the next generation that did this and the next and the generation after that. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're still living under the influence of all things, and nothing could ever be that influential again. It's, you know, just because of the numbers, because we are so fragmented. As a society we are our so, viewing our entertainment choices are so fragmented you know and i I'm not saying that's a bad thing by the way, because there is nothing there is no bad there just is what it is and uh any 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 turn in technology any turn in culture you're going to get good things and you're going to get bad things. You're going to get things that are positive and you're going to get negatives out of it. And it's never a clear-cut win-win situation. And it's never a lose-lose situation. I mean, the great thing about the amount of technology we have now and the amount of entertainment we have now is diversity. We have many more voices being heard than were heard back in the 1960s. There are a lot more hands on the trigger of what culture is. So there's a lot more... Types of voices being heard, and that's fantastic. That's great. You know, the the, the you know what, what we've lost is the common experience. You can't have both.
0: You, know, you
2: can't. You can't have. Both. So it's not that it's a you know it's it's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is what it is. You know, and uh, there are a lot of people who say, "Boy, I wish it were like the 1960s again." And I'm thinking, well, there are a lot of great things about the 1960s, and you cannot judge an entire decade over all of the bad things that happened in it or all the good things that's a that's that's kind of a small mind that will do that that will basically like you say if you look at the 60s and you say oh it's all love beat and peace signs you know what you know you're missing a lot of the noble things that happened in the 60s and all the great things that happened in the 60s you know, but there's also a lot of sexism in the culture and in the entertainment there was a lot of misogyny there was a lot of uh, there was, you know, you know, I want to say to people, you know, how would you like to go anywhere and just be assaulted by cigarette smoke? Because it was everywhere in the '60s. You could not get away from it. Restaurants were choked with smoke. There were no no smoking sections. There were no no smoking. You couldn't get away from it on airplanes. Couldn't get away from it in your own home and families. Every home had ashtrays. Who has ashtrays anymore? Yeah, every home in the 1960s had, you know, every room had a collection of ashtrays. You show an uh-huh. ashtray to a kid now, they don't even know what they're looking at. <laughs> yeah. and, the, it, you know, so it, it's not. It has nothing to do with, you know, you know, the the things have improved, and you know, there, you you win and you lose, is basically what it do. And you live in your time, and you appreciate the good things that are in your time and that's, you know, that's kind of the way you have to do it. Uh, otherwise you're just going to be one of these people who get old very fast and bemoan about, you know, why aren't things like the good old days, you know? And I, I guarantee you there were things about the good old days, which weren't very good. <laughs> so, and I guarantee you if you look around, you're going to see things which you're going to love about now, that you would have hated to do without, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, again, I'm not, I don't, I don't bemoan it, you know, it's just like, uh, I just, I'm just saying that that's, it, it is what it is. And uh, I, I'm not one of those who basically, you know, endlessly looks towards the past and says, you know, gee, you know, why aren't things like they were when the, when the universe was well-ordered for me in my view.
1: Yeah. And Mark, what you were talking about with the, uh, uh good and bad from this generation or this decade um you know, you know there there were some good things that came out of the sixties you know, you know, it's it, the start of each of your chapters and your revised everything I need to know I learned in the twilight zone yeah you know, it, it- just starts all it, it, it it, the, the the chapters seem to start off m- m- like uh, parents talking to a child, you know, s- s- someone who has experience, you know, just kind of leading someone into the theme of the the grouping of certain Twilight Zone episodes, you know, by themes. You might have like, you know. Three or four episodes uh, that the uh, theme of you know, the downfalls of greed or something like that are all linked mm-hmm. together. Uh, you know, it's, you know, that's one of the nice uh, aspects of y- your expanded ver- version of your book. I, I, I just really enjoyed the, the uh, lead ins to um the several episode you a 150 some episodes that you you cover in the book uh you know what one uh, the other really interesting aspects of um twilight zone book is you know people like your friend uh, Richard Matheson, that came out of the 50s and 60s and continued to have a successful career uh, throughout the you know, following decades. Uh, you, know, you, you reminded me that. He he was the author of, or or the screenwriter for uh, *Dreamer of Oz*. Mm Hmm. I I I I think that was a vastly underrated movie. I I really enjoyed
2: it. Yeah. In fact, I met
1: Richard when
2: he was doing that. (laughs) Uh, That's how we met. Um. He. uh, Oh, okay. There was there was a, a press conference at the Century Plaza Hotel. Uh, it was aired on NBC and they had a press conference for it with John Ritter and Annette O'Toole Mm -hmm. and Cloris Leachman and, and, um, and Richard Matheson. And this was just about the time I was uh, noodling around the idea of doing a book on the Night Stalker. So I, after the press conference, I introduced myself and at this point I actually knew, I, I had known Ray Bradbury for several years and uh, I was hoping to write, do a book with Ray, and we were we were sort of were doing something together. And then you know the paths sort of divert, diverged and we just didn't get a chance to to, to pursue that. Uh, we you know I've, I've got hours and hours of taped interviews with Ray sitting here in my office and, uh, from that, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's I would love to revisit that at some day, at some point. But I knew Ray very well, and I knew uh, Harlan Ellison. I met Harlan uh, when he was the uh, creative consultant on the 1985 revival of The Twilight Zone. I met Harlan in The Twilight Zone, Uh, and uh, and we hit it off well. And Harlan and Ray were very good friends with Richard. So I actually met Richard last uh, of those three, and my Shawshank book is dedicated to the three of them, dedicated to Ray, Harlan and Richard and uh, but I met Richard last and I again I, I met him in the late 80s when Dreamer of Oz was being done and that's right about the time I was going to start work on the Night Stalker book and that kind of led to a, a lot of discussions on the Night Stalker and his career and then that those discussions turned into an ongoing discussion um which lasted over the years and uh you can think you're pretty hot stuff you can think you've uh, you know you've accomplished something and you're uh, you you know you're you've made some contributions and then you know you open a book and you see that you know Richard has mentioned you in the dedication of two of his books and uh that'll pretty much flatten you when you see that uh, you know, you, you, part of your brain okay. goes, well, I can retire now. <laughs> that's, that's a that's a, that's a sufficient honor. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I ended up being very, you know, close to Richard, you know, uh, over the years and, um, you know, he was very sweet. Just, you know, I always say that he and Harlan were the polar opposites because you know, Richard was tall, Harlan was short. Although Harlan would have just accused me of making a heightist remark when I said that, but Harlan was on the short side, and Richard was on the tall side uh Richard is very soft was very soft spoken Harlan not so much uh and you know but they were they they adored each other and they adored each other's work, and uh they were two of the most important you know genre writers that the, uh, you know, although Harlan probably would, would come back and kill me for calling him a genre writer. <laughs> yeah. Harlan was one, like we were talking about before with Poe and Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Harlan, he, uh, you know, when, when, I was, when I met Harlan in 1985, uh, because CBS was doing the revival of Twilight Zone and I was the TV critic at the Akron Beacon Journal at the time. So the publicists on the Twilight Zone, asked me, said, you know, we're doing the revival of the Twilight Zone. Is there anybody connected with the show you want to talk to? And I didn't have to think twice. I said, yeah, I I, I want to talk to Harlan Ellison. And they said, oh, we can make that work. You know, so at that point, I had read a fierce amount of Harlan's uh, stuff. And I, and I knew quite a bit about him. You know, and I also knew that, you know, an interview with Harlan was, it was either going to be you know, great memory, <laughs> or it was going to go off the tracks really fast, and uh, because you know, Harlan did not suffer fools gladly, and uh, our our relationship, the tone of our relationship was set right at the beginning, because before I asked one question, uh, Harlan said, "You know, all right, wait, wait, wait. There, there's one ground rule," and I said, "Yeah, I know. I can't call you a science fiction." And he said, God bless you. And I said, you don't believe in God. And he said, that's how much I mean it. So we, we sort of hit it off right from the start. Now, I've got to explain that. It's not that Harlan was not proud of his science fiction writing. He certainly was. And he certainly was very pleased to be named a grandmaster in, in science fiction. What he did not want was his accomplishments as a writer – completely defined and reduced to science fiction. So what Harlan did not want was to be written about as science fiction author Harlan Ellison. If you just restructured that sentence and said Harlan Ellison, who has written landmark science fiction, he'd have no problem with that. That was fine because it was true. But when, again, Harlan had the writer's mentality, which was, If science fiction is the best way to tell the story, that's the way you tell it. If horror is the best way, that's the way you tell it. If mystery is the best way, that's the way you tell it. Uh, You know, Harlan wrote essays. He wrote criticism. He wrote landmark TV criticism, movie criticism. You know, Harlan was just a writer, you know, and that's so he didn't, uh, uh, he didn't, he hated that kind of uh, labeling and reduction that goes with it. You know, and Richard wasn't crazy about it either, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> Richard hated being called a horror writer. You know, uh, I, he, and, and that's maybe the thing he was called most. <laughs> he hated you know, like the, the 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 description horror writer, Richard Matheson. Now, again, it's not because he wasn't proud of the, the horror writing he'd done. After all, Stephen King once said that Richard Matheson was the most influential writer on him. but it was the guy who taught him how to do it. Um, but richard you know and, and, and richard felt like it's fine to be working in the same fields with people like mary shelley and 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 and, and robert louis stevenson and shirley jackson and 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 people like that he, I, he's very proud to be you know in the same company as those people what he hated was that the culture had taken the word horror and made it a pseudonym, not pseudonym, a synonym for slasher, especially in movies. That if you said you were doing a horror movie, people immediately thought slasher movie. And he thought that reduced what horror was to blood and guts, you know. And that bothered him. That really bothered him. So he didn't like to be called a horror writer, but mostly because of what the connotation was, you know, and, and also, you know, Richard was a deceptively versatile writer. He wrote Westerns. People don't know that he wrote really good Westerns and he wrote for some Western series, you know, and, and he wrote obviously stuff that was fantasy. He also wrote science fiction and he also wrote, you know, just flat out horror stories. So, you know, Richard's not that easy to pin down either in in all of this, and you know i don't think richard you know if you know i once said to him you know why did you start writing horror you know i know you know you always sort of look where the dynamic tension is and where the creativity comes from with writers and you know when richard got out of college he you know he was in world war 2 he was in bat, the battle of the bulge he uh, um, mm. he was he he, he he suffered uh, frostbite and in, in the Battle of the Bulge, and, you know, he, he, both he and Rod were in, were in different theaters because, because Rod was in the South Pacific. as a paratrooper, and he came back very scarred from the war. And Richard was in the European theater, and he came back very scarred from his war experiences. And they both headed to college. They both, you know, you know and Rod headed to, to Antioch in Yellow Springs, Ohio, with sort of the vague notion of perhaps being a physical education teacher, working with kids, he, didn't, he, he wasn't thinking about being a writer. In, in no, you know, he wasn't going there at all. And, and Richard was. Richard went to college, and he, went and he majored in journalism, but the whole idea of majoring in journalism was the notion of finding a way to support yourself with writing while you were doing other kinds of writing. But they both kind of work through trauma and, and, and Rod discovered writing in Antioch and he discovered that he could work through his, his war experiences uh, through writing. And then Richard discovered that he could work through not only his war experiences but also an overwhelming sense of alienation that was part of a lot of his early stories. If you're looking through a, a sort of a common theme, Uh, in in richard's early work the notion of the loner what is i am legend about if it's not about the ultimate outsider the ultimate loner one man in a world full of vampires fighting a world Mm -hmm. full of vampires if that ain't alienation i ain't heard it the incredible the shrinking man you know about somebody who is literally withdrawing from the human race is another case of alienation and this notion of the the loner up against the impossible odds duel, you know, is, is a great uh-huh. story that that Steven Spielberg makes. Uh, the one man up against this faceless monstrous truck. This it is this this symbol of of, of oppression. Night Stalker, Kolchak, up against not only a vampire but an entire bureaucracy and corrupt city government that wants to suppress him and works against him. This is all of these stories about these outsiders and loners and things Richard was working through something and he said so I
3: mean you know, when we
2: talked about this he said you know that that it was a very powerful sense of in, in him and he had to work through it he had to, to work through it in his writing and personally too and he did he did that that scene somewhat goes away later on in his writing because he did sort of cathartically deal with it but both rod and and Richard come back from the war. And, you know, Rod starts to work right for live television. So he's, he's not writing sort of genre, what we would call genre fiction in any way. He's writing almost uh, Arthur Miller-type stories for live television. And that becomes his outlet. And that's where he ascends very, very quickly to the, the head of his profession as a, as a television writer. He's one of the what they call the angry young men of live television. Richard makes his name selling to the pulp magazines, which were around then, amazing stories and amazing fantasy. And I once asked him, you know, why did you start writing horror stories and science fiction stories? And he said, because that's what would sell. There were outlets for those in the 50s. There were all those magazines, and you knew you could sell to them. Which is a very Edgar Allan Poe-like answer, <laughs> you know. Why was why did okay. Poe write those things? Because there were magazines in his time, and he knew he could he could he could make his name writing these these very sensational Gothic stories. And you know, it's it's not that he thought that this was going to be his great literary achievement. In fact, it's very good evidence he didn't, you know, and. If Poe had inherited all the money he thought he was going to inherit from his stepfather and he ended up being cut off without a cent but if poe if John Allen had given Poe all the money that Poe thought he was going to get Poe probably turns into a gentleman poet he probably if he lived the life of a genteel, gentrified southern aristocrat. He's probably going to write poetry, and he's probably going to write essays, but he's probably never going to write the horror stories because there won't be any need for it. And he's probably not going to write the more uh, the detective stories either. And we probably don't get Edgar Allan Poe. What I'm telling you is life takes its hand. John Allen didn't do Edgar Allan Poe any favors by not giving him any money but he did do us an enormous favor by cutting him off because that's what led Poe to discover how good he was at these stories of terror and crime. And, you know, Richard Matheson, you know, he discovers that that these horror stories are great metaphoric devices for working through the trauma that, that he had experienced as an individual and through the war. And Rod does the same thing. So the war takes its hand in this. You know, if we don't have World War II, maybe we don't get Rod Serling and Richard Math. Maybe Rod does become a phys ed teacher. Maybe maybe Richard becomes a journalist. But, you know, they both had a need and they were shaped by what was happening at the time and they responded to it. So, you know, it, 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 you know you're always shaped by your times. You can't write a sonnet Without being influenced by your times, and so you know with all of them, you know you sort of get this the, the fact that whatever was happening in the culture, whatever happened was happening historically affected them profoundly, and it's it, it they responded by giving us these wonderful gifts of these stories that they that they pursued so and and they each had a different way of doing it yeah.
1: Mark, since you know it's it, it, interesting to read it, uh, uh, you know, just say your Everything I Need to Know uh, book um, and hear he, you talk, uh, it, and you know, pro- probably 99.9% of us you know listening to you um, never met Ray Bradbury or Richard Matheson but you know you know you're giving us such an insight into their creativity and you know with uh, Richard he he you know wrote some of the most memorable, uh, twilight zone episodes and like twenty thousand or nightmare twenty thousand feet um one of the inter- uh it, there's a lot of dialogue in the nightmare mo- um uh, episode uh, a little little girl lost um but th- th- there are is the Invaders episode, which basically has... It's basically a silent movie, uh, other than Agnes Moorhead panting after swinging an axe at the little alien uh, creatures. And and there's really not too much dialogue in Duel. So he's very... Uh, um, proficient at cr- creating a story w- with um, just action. It, it, it seems like some uh, taking a chance on developing something where there's really not much to say. In uh, duel, it's just more of the story he wrote, and then you get uh, De- Dennis Weaver's you know responses, uh, you know to you know he thought he beat uh, beat the truck, uh, you know as he started coasting down the hill, and he thought you know the truck didn't make it up up the hill, or whatever, uh, and then all of a sudden the truck appears in the rear view mirror and, uh, you, know, you get all these, uh, gl- glad to terrified expression. It, it, it's, he really pulled off a lot of, uh, uh genres that most, of, most writers w- would have a difficult time, um, achieving, but he, he, He's Richard was really a standout in being so versatile. Can you talk a little bit more about? Oh yeah, aspect of him forever. You know, well, one thing
2: I'll point out immediately is about the invaders and Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet. As different as those two episodes are, and they're two of his most memorable episodes of the Twilight Zone. There we have it: the loner against the big odds again right they're just two different types of loners you know agnes moorhead is a, literally alone in her farmhouse when this invasion occurs and uh william shatner's character in nightmare 20000 feet is the one person who sees the danger and nobody believes him he's the one guy against the impossible odds so there it is and one's very talky and the other has almost no dialogue at all um but what, but what they have in common, and what all of Richard's writing has in common, is this is one way Richard is closer to Poe than than, than Serling is, too, is Richard uh, he always used just what he needed and nothing more when he wrote. His writing is a model of incredible efficiency. There's an old saying with writers, which is that, you know, once you're done with your first draft and you, you again go back and you get rid of all the needless words. And you're like, what are the needless words? You know. Well, they're all the words you don't need. They're all the words that you know that, that, that literally or things you don't need. Scenes and, 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 and there's a there's an expression among writers called murdering the babies, which is means getting rid of something you really love that you wrote, but it hurts the book. It may be the best thing you wrote, but it doesn't belong in the book, or it hurts the, the pacing, or it slows down the pacing. So you got to murder that moment. You've got to murder something you love. Richard was uh, like Poe. Poe believed that everything that was in a poem or everything that was in a short story should focus on the mood, atmosphere, effect, that he was trying to get across, the feeling that he was trying to get across. And Richard's work, no matter what he was writing, Richard's work is laser-locked on that kind of economy of structure and effect. Nothing goes to waste. I Am Legend is a very short book. I Am Legend is almost a long, short story or a novella. And everything in it is important. Every word... (laughs) There's not a misstep in I Am Legend. Um, There's a reason that that book was voted the most important vampire uh, book written uh, between Dracula and today. When a vote was taken a few years ago by the Horror Writers Association and they were trying to decide what was the most important vampire book between us and Dracula, you know, which is pretty much saying what is the the second most important vampire novel of all time. I Am Legend was the clear winner. Um, and you know, Anne Rice and Stephen King are both in that, that field. (laughs) They're both have contenders in that, that field. And, and, and other writers admire Richard's, I mean, readers admire Richard's work, fans admire Richard's work, but one of the greatest admiration, there's a reason Stephen King said what he did. And you know I once interviewed Robert Bloch who was very good friends with 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 Richard and Harlan as well he was he was very close to both of them and um and Bob Bloch you know I asked him about you know sort of what what advice he would give to young writers starting out and he said something which to this day it just amazes me because I think it is one. It's so honest. He said, "There's very little that can be said about process uh, that's of, of great value." But if somebody were to come up to me to say, "I want to be a writer," the number one thing I would say to them is read Richard Matheson. Now, he didn't say if somebody came up to me and said, "I want to be a horror writer." Or I want to be a science fiction writer, or I want to be a television writer. He, he just said, writer. And he was saying, here is a model of what not to do and what to do. And the same thing is don't labor your stuff with needless, stuff, with needless words. Don't look at the efficiency here. Don't look at the power of, of, of the chosen words and the effect. Look how careful the craftsmanship is. It's you know Richard is ne- is never going to get his due uh, as as an American writer like most genre writers don't until a long time uh, after they're dead and it takes a long time for the Academy and for co- the culture to catch up with them. Um, but Richard was a great American writer and Robert Block was right. You don't you don't in any way diminish that by saying he was a great horror writer. You don't diminish it by saying he was a great science fiction writer. Richard Matheson was a great writer period. And it's going to take a while for people to catch up to him. Just as it's going to take a people a long time to catch up to Stephen King. You know, I, I, i happen to believe that Stephen King is one of the most important American writers of the last 50 years. Because mm-hmm. something Anne Rice told me once was that, uh, that Stephen King was in many ways our Dickens in the sense that when Dickens was writing, he was not considered the great British writer of his time. If you had argued that when Dickens was at the height of his popularity, that he was the great English writer, the members of that Academy would have said, you're certainly not suggesting that he's the equal of Thackeray, are you? You Surely you're not saying that. Well, who reads Thackeray today? Yeah, you know, there, there are Talk some, too many. of course. You know, there are some people, and 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 not to say that Thackeray is not worth reading, but look Kubert at the did. influence. Look at the influence that Dickens has had. Look at the, the 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 presence that Dickens has been, and look at the lives that Dickens has touched and the influence that he's had, and the reason is, as Anne Rice said, you know. If you want to know what life was like on the streets of London in the 1840s, you're not going to get it from Carlisle. You're not going to get it from Thackeray. You're not going to get it from those writers who were, you know, considered the, the height of the art at the time. You can only get it from Dickens. And if you want to know what life was like down at the Seven Eleven in the 1970s and 1980s, you're going to have to go to the novels of Stephen King because he was talking about the American family and the American scene in a way that other writers weren't during that time. And but it's all couched in horror, and if you write horror, you are somewhat relegated to the children's table. If you write comedy or you write horror, humor and horror, are the two hardest forms to master and write well. You know, uh, I may have told you this the last time we talked, but there's a great quote in the uh, introduction to the first Stephen King's first collection of short stories, Night Shift, and it was written by the mystery writer John D. MacDonald, who was another writer's writer, wonderful writer wrote the Travis McGee novels. And John D. McDonald said in that introduction that the two hardest forms of writing and other writers understand this, the general public doesn't, they tend to give the back of the hand to these forms, but the two hardest forms to write and master at the highest level were humor and horror because in the wrong hands, the humor became horrible and the horror became humorous. And that there were very few actual true masters of this form. And yet these were the forms we relegated to the children's table of literature or even the sub-basement of literature. And Stephen King, uh, like Rod Serling, you know, Rod Serling is another one who's, it's going to take a long time for people to catch up to Rod because he wrote for television, he wrote genre, and he was a celebrity. He He did commercials. And that's like strike one, two, and three. Well, Stephen King has got similar strikes against him, and well, I think Richard does too. And it's going to take a while for people to understand just how good a writer Richard Matheson was and why he should be, uh, you know, elevated to a much higher level than where, than where he is. It took a long time for, for Dickens to, to emerge as the great English writer, the great master. I mean, he, he's now considered second only to Shakespeare. As you know, the great masters of the uh, uh, of English literature, but that took a while. It took, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it it took decades. It took decades for Poe to be, and it took basically England and France and other countries embracing him and pointing out how incredibly, what a genius he was. Um, Twain, same thing. You know, in Twain's lifetime, there were annual polls, where they would poll writers and academics and professors and such, and they would ask them to vote on the, like, the 10 great American writers of the moment. And, you know, for a long time, Twain didn't even make the list. Well, who did make the list? People you've never heard of. People who 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 now talk to us in a dead language. And, you know, it wasn't even towards the end of his life that, that Twain starts to show up at the bottom, <laughs> you know, and... Where you know, and you know, one poll, one of his best friends, one of Twain's very closest friends, was a writer named William Dean Howells. Um, and Howells is largely forgotten today. Howells is is, is a largely he was called the Dean of, of American literature. And um, Howells came in number one on one of these polls, and Twain was was several places back. And Twain sent Howells a letter congratulating him and said, "You're at the head of the pack where you belong." And I'm thinking, you know, no, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he doesn't. And he ain't going to stay there long because, you know, in a generation or two, he's going to fade. And Twain's going to grow in stature. You know, so, uh, you know, it's probably going to take a hundred years for, you know, some of these writers to be fully recognized for, for what they're doing and what they've done. And that's not all that odd. That's not that strange. Like, you know, the, Poe was was trying to elevate literature and he was greatly at odds with the New England uh, literary circles who had somewhat of a stranglehold on what was acceptable literature. And Poe was always somewhat of an outsider. He also picked a lot of fights, was not considered the great American poet in his lifetime. Well, who was? Well, Longfellow was, you know, now, Longfellow's stuff was incredibly popular in the 1830s, and and, and and Longfellow wrote these poems we call poems of the hearth. They were, were poems to be read aloud uh, in front of the fireplace with a lot of feeling and a lot of spirit, and you know, uh, you know, the, the village smithy and things like that. And you know, and Poe correctly predicted that Longfellow would not last many generations; that he would gradually fade. Because this was a a movement of the moment, and there was nothing that was that eternal about it. And you know, he 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 correctly predicted his own poetry would grow and Longfellow's would fade. You know, and but if he, you made that argument in the eighteen forties, you you know you you wouldn't have gotten much support for it. You wouldn't have gotten many people to agree with you, with it now, but today everybody knows the Raven and Mm -hmm. very few people could even tell you Longfellow's full name. So (laughs) let alone any, the title of one of his poems. So, you know, like I said, I think time is on the side of people like Richard. Um, but I'm sad to say that in your lifetime, if you choose to write this sort of thing, um, you're not going to be fully recognized for it. And you better, I I, I said that, you know, to a workshop of, uh, uh, it was a, it was a panel at at a book festival and we had a room full of aspiring horror writers. And I said to them, you know, know this, know if you choose this path, you are not going to get the respect you deserve. And you are going to be relegated to the children's table when it comes to, uh, you know, literature and, and, and writing. So, you know, you, you be aware of this before you go down this path. And, you know, that's, you know, it's, and, and that's part and parcel with the notion that we have separated it out, that Robert Louis Stevenson could write horror and not be penalized for it, that it would be the equal, that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was the equal of anything else he wrote. And it wasn't considered a lesser thing because of that's what he wrote. And once again, the 20th century has its way with us. And one of the things that he does is it, it, it sort of, well, let me put it this way. There are a lot of people who are cases of arrested development. And <laughs> that does not stop at any level of society it exists everywhere and the one thing that people try to replicate in their lives almost more than anything else and if you want to know if somebody's a case of arrested development look at this they try to replicate high school because high school high school is it's only four years for most people it's only four years there, but it's a very intense four years. High school always is magnified. Everything that happens in high school is magnified. Every, every, every glance is magnified in, in its meaning. Everything that happens to you is magnified. The romances of high school are magnified. Everything is like under this, 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 this magnifying glass in high school. So although it's only four years of your life, it's a very transitional four years And it's a very intense four years. Now, the lucky people are able to leave high school and and, and leave it behind, whatever it was. Most people carry high school with them the rest of their lives. And they replicate it in their lives in some way. They replicate it at work. They replicate it on the school boards. They replicate it in the parking lots of of the schools. They replicate it everywhere. And they immediately start setting up popular tables in the cafeteria. Everybody knew where they belonged in the, the caste system and the society that was high school. You knew where you belonged. Were you at the nerd table? Were you at the popular table? Were you at the jock table? Everybody knew where they belonged in high school. And for some people, that was comforting, and they want to go back to it. They want to, they want to replicate it. Well, guess what? Literary and academic types are no different than anybody else. <laughs> they replicate the popular table at the cafeteria like everybody else. And they say, no, no, where are the people who control the popular table? You write science fiction, your place is over there. <laughs> you write horror, yeah. your place is over there. And that is the case of arrested development. Now you know you're dealing with with arrested development.
1: Now, okay. you know mm-hmm. I'm saying mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Mark. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. Mark, I just wanted to let you know, uh, uh, we don't have four years of high school left. Uh, I think uh, we're down to ah. like uh, 30 seconds. Uh, You're kidding. I can't believe we, 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 we've gone through this this fast. It feels like we just started talking. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. We can't go, go go back and add more time, but people mm-hmm. can go to the archives. Uh, h- how about if you uh, give out your website? And that, that's about as much time as we have left. And Barbara's uh, going to uh, sure. h- hang up on us. And uh, hey, you got Arlen Schumer's James Bond show uh, t- tomorrow night. That's going to be a, a neat one. So, uh, okay, Mark, do, do do your thing real fast
2: it's mark and uh, it that that it, it's just that easy it's just my name dot com so go to go take a look and i'm on facebook if you if you want to find me there
1: okay uh th- thank you and we'll see you tomorrow night